Welcome to the global phenomenon, Surviving the Survivor, where we're all just trying to survive in a rough world. What's up, SCS Nation, and welcome to another episode of Surviving the Survivor, the podcast that promises to bring you the very best guests in true crime. It is not a tagline. It is our reality. And tonight, you're in for a treat. We're going deep inside the criminal mind, uh, trying to figure out what exactly uh, a few people who've been in the news were thinking when they either committed crimes or alleged to commit crimes. Uh, We've got new news about Brian Koberger. Uh, We're going to look a little more closely at him, as well as Lori Vallow, who's now uh, convicted, waiting to be sentenced, as well as the accused Boston serial rapist guy named Matthew Nilo, uh, who could be spending a lot of time behind bars. And there's also a true crime fanatic uh, in South Korea who reportedly killed to see what it felt like. So we're going to go through some of these cases uh, with our best guests, and they are Darby Fox. She is a child and adolescent family therapist with over 25 years of experience with children and families from diverse backgrounds. Her first book, Rethinking Your Teenager, Shifting from Conflict and Control to Structure and Nurture uh, to Raise Accountable Young Adults. I should have read that. I went to an early birthday (laughs) dinner for my nine-year-old, and my seven-year-old was a pain in the you-know-what, and uh, I had to do what I do best. I had to threaten her, and then she backed off. Uh, Darby is an expert on uh, all things related to parents and family topics. She's been on everything, ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox News, and she is a contributor to Psychology Today. The next man, you know him well. Uh, behind the scenes, uh, Debbie was asking what, what she should refer to uh, Roger as, and he said, hey, you. So I love that. We'll call him hey, you from now on. Dr. Roger Rhodes is a senior therapist at the Pace Center in Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, He works uh, and and specializes, and it's perfect for this, in dysfunctional relationships. And he has worked with inmates inside the prison system. And then you've got Dr. Debbie Goodman of St. Thomas University here in Southern Florida. She is a criminologist, a published author, an educator, and a former TV show host. Uh, Quick reminder, you can follow us on Facebook, Insta, Twitter. We are at Podcast STS. Uh, Temporarily, you cannot find us anywhere you listen to podcasts because uh, the chief technical officer is switching us to a new publishing platform. Bear with us. We'll be back on Spotify, Audible, and all those other platforms, uh, hopefully beginning of next week. You can also support us at Patreon on YouTube, and the merch store is open if anyone wants to by Roger, a mug, an STS mug. You can send it to him. Um, There you go. As I always like to do, uh, since we're going to start off with uh, Brian Koberger and the Idaho Four, uh, let us not forget the victims involved in this horrific crime. Madison Mogan, 21. Kaylee Gonzalez, her good friend, 21 as well. Zana Kernodal, 20. And Ethan Chapin, 20. May their memories be a blessing. So, uh, without further ado, um, and let's actually start here uh, w- with a sort of a silver lining and an awful story, and that is um, Ethan Chapin's mom, Stacy, just appeared on uh, the Today Show, Darby, which you have been on, I believe, um, and she talked about her her son, and, and you deal with children um, with such love. Um, 
and he's a triplet. And she says, when you have triplets, you have this compelling sense of fairness. Um, in talking about her son, she said he did not play favorites. He didn't care who the best player was on the team or the last player on the team. He just loved playing. Uh, and she's written a children's book about him called The Boy Who Wore Blue. Um, how must her heart be aching, Darby? And, uh, I mean, if you were, um, you know, if she came to you for therapy, I, and it's obviously way too complicated to an answer in a short answer, but, I mean, how would you begin to uh, comfort her and speak to her? So I did happen to see her interview on the Today Show, and it's just incredible what her stance is at this stage. And her book about the boy who wore blue is because when they were young, she had to keep her triplets straight, so they all wore a different color. And she speaks about what an incredible person he was and his fairness, and that she needs to try and keep remembering those pieces to go forward. And at the very end, it was very compelling to hear her. Someone said, why do you keep like, why do you keep going? And she said, because we have two other kids and we need to do it for his siblings. And I think that that is one thing that when we look back at families, that notion that you're doing it for someone else and for the younger kids, or in this case, not younger, but the other, the triplets is, um, I don't even know how she can do that. It's short of heroic that she does have a purpose and that allows her to move on. Right. If you get stuck in why or the fairness because it wasn't fair, there's it doesn't make any sense, all of that, then it will be hard for her to carry on. And um, I love her awareness that the other children need her as well. So she's like, okay, this is breaking my heart. I have my moments when I fall, but I need to keep going. And it's not so much there was a purpose for this, but it's the notion that there is something greater than this. Uh, well put. Elle Rose joining us. I love her name from Australia. She's got her coffee and avocado. As I say, we are the future. As you can tell, it's already the next day in Australia. Uh, Raj, uh, even though your Wi-Fi connection is crappy, I still love you. Uh, she went on to say that um, Ethan was the glue that kept us all together. He was funny and inclusive, and he always made sure that uh, Maisie and Hunter were included and loved. Those are his uh, siblings, the triplets. Um, how much is it complicated for the family, um, the fact that he was uh, one of three in terms of being a triplet? My thinking is uh, she sees it as a glitch, okay? That they're, they're really two realities. The, the reality she goes by and continues to go by, which is impressive, uh, but... Uh, he was able to skip through that and turn into something totally different. So that's kind of the nature nurture dance. And it certainly wasn't nurture. It was basically nature that grabbed him. And um, yeah, I, I listen, I was just at dinner. My daughter turned nine today. I just cannot imagine it. Uh, and my mom will make fun of me because I bring it up too often, but I am writing a book. Um, in addition to going through the war, my mom did lose a child at a very young age. He was three. Uh, he was sick. And uh, when I put myself in her shoes or Stacy Chapin's shoes, I can't really uh, fathom uh, what, what that was all about. Um, 
Speaking of the topic of parents, but I think this is in relation, uh, Dr. Goodman, and we'll switch over to Brian Koberger now. Uh, Sally Vell, I think she's asking about Brian Koberger's parents. Are the parents distancing themselves because they are in fear of their son or are they in fear of the people that hate their son and afraid of revenge from somebody else's son? Um, I'm not sure exactly how we know that they are distancing themselves. I mean, obviously, he is in jail uh, awaiting a trial. But um, would you care to speculate on that, Dr. Goodman, in terms of how the family of the suspect here is dealing? Certainly. Well, good evening, Joel and Roger Darby. Certainly a pleasure to join you. Regards, of course, to Mrs. Waldman and Steve Cohen and, and the wonderful audience of STS Nation. So, you know, as parents, we love unconditionally. And no parent expects a child to grow up to be an alleged quadruple murderer. So my sense of the parental status that they have of their child it would have moved through several steps and stages already, the first of which, of course, would have been just complete and utter shock that their child would be somebody now the name and the uh, you know focus of worldwide international attention regarding this crime, of course, would be singularly just devastating for any parent to even think that, that their child could be accused of a quadruple murder. But I think as um, similarly to victims, still, of course, shocking. And I appreciate, Joel, your focus. And you know that's always my focus, too, on the victimology and always honoring and respecting our victims. But I think as this case moves forward and as evidence is coming forward, there will have to be some type of logic and reasonableness that sets in when a lot of what has already been presented against this suspect is very uh, significant. So it's not just the tangible evidence, of course, of, of this knife sheath, which is aligning with his DNA, but there is a lot of circumstantial evidence. And you know my background, I've been involved in you know many high profile cases of serial murder, mass murder, but evidence doesn't lie. People lie, even suspects will lie and most of whom, when they're accused, will not enter a guilty plea. And the not guilty is expected, but we know with this defendant, he stood silent. So from a parental standpoint, I think there will be a sense of realization of what will be forthcoming, and the evidence is significant. But I think from a parental lens, it's so painful on both sides, so hurtful, the parents of the victims, and yes, the parents of the suspect. Uh, IA says, and this is a good point here, uh, and Darby, if you, if you care to address this, I'm a psychoanalyst and it's very difficult to generalize any behavior because they are results of psychic conflicts and each comprise for, and each comprise formation is unique. I think she's trying to say that each person uh, is inherently different, Darby. Um, any quick reaction to that? And then we'll, we'll move into some of the uh, meat and potatoes. So, so I th that that is absolutely true, right? That's why we can't predict a lot because um, every behavior is based on your own unique narrative and your experience. However, given that, we can't say exactly, is he a psychopath? Is he a so -so sociopath? Where does he fall? Because we don't have all those details to be able to put it in place. But it does help us to come to an understanding. And I do think that that's important to see some trends or some 
um, shared behaviors with other serial killers, with other people, because we want some sense of understanding for this. So in that sense, um, while I agree with IA about the unique compromise formation, it is very important to keep in mind we can put some um, shared components into it to make understanding out of it. Uh, Nightwood, shout out to Dr. Rhodes. Uh, Kitty says, Dr. Raj in the house. Hey, SDS Nation, love me some Dr. Rhodes. Good to see Debbie back, a major favorite. Um, and this is my favorite so far from Tali in Israel. Hey, STS family, ready for another great show. And Dr. Raj's words, woo-wee, buddy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That was a pretty good one for me right there, Raj. That um, was. Hey, you're getting oaky on me. Watch out. I'm, I'm getting Oklahoma on you. So, yeah, um, yeah so there's some new uh, information out about Brian Koberger. Um, he was pictured, and, and obviously people are going to read into all this stuff so much, um, but Dr. Raj, he was pictured in a front row seat at a 2018 lecture of prominent author Margaret Atwood uh, at some community college. This was years obviously before he was accused of um, murdering these students. Uh, she's an interesting character because character she wrote The Handmaid's Tale, which is a dystopian story about a government-sponsored subjugation of women. And so people are now uh, reading into this that he was here kind of profiling women and having a gripe with with women uh and that's what attracted him to this speech uh does any of that um i don't know conform to your thinking well without a doubt i mean this is playing the long run here the long game you know did he just out of nowhere do what he did no no it was it was an element of grooming and going to that speech was probably part of the ceremony of grooming that he did. And, and so that, that kind of is scary because uh, this was not an impulse moment. This was something that he thought of years back and it followed the path. And then when the point came, he, he felt he was smarter than anybody else and took it. And so would going to a lecture like that uh, be part of his agenda? Yeah. Yeah, it would. And it would fit right in. Uh, this next comment, by the way, my, my friend Kevin Fixler with the Idaho Statesman. Uh, he is uh, one of their uh, investigative reporters. Um, he has a story out. You know, there were the two stops in Indiana on the way home, which is indirectly related to this comment, which is why I bring it up. Uh, but he has a story that just broke uh, maybe two hours ago saying that according to the FBI and multiple law enforcement authorities, those two stops were actually just coincidence. Um, it was part of some sort of drug trafficking routine that police law enforcement does uh, on the interstate there. Uh, Cause some people have suspected that the FBI was stopping him to take a look at him. But according to Kevin Fixler, that is not the case. Now, um, Dr. Goodman to you, uh, since you're more of the profiler, profiler criminology type, um, Bobby Henson says, I'm convinced that Koberger disposed of the knife on the way to Pennsylvania. Any chance his dad helped? Um, before we get there, though, I'm glad everyone reminded me today is Kaylee Gonzalez's birthday. Uh, she would have been 22 years old. Obviously, a difficult day for her family. Um, I saw them on the news last night and uh, 
we are thinking of them. But what about this notion that um, maybe the dad helped him to get rid of this knife? Because that is uh, a big part of the equation. Certainly. Well, again, with thoughts and prayers for Kaylee's family and, and the other three families. So my view, Joel, on the knife is that this suspect has the knife. No doubt in my mind. I don't think he discarded it. I don't think he gave it to anybody. I don't think either parent would be in um, possession of this knife. Remember, when we talk about serial murderers, mass murderers, unfortunately for them, and we understand this through decades of review and analysis and case study, that it's almost like a souvenir for them. It's a trophy. So I absolutely do not think anybody has possession of this knife nor was it discarded, and our suspect knows where it is. But aside from that, even this knife sheath, I feel, is so significant in this case. It's huge, really, because it, it's an irregularity. It, it aligns with DNA that was already recovered from the trash of the Koberger family. So that, for me, is very significant. And, you know, as we talk on, on different platforms, as, as new information is forthcoming, we still have a lot of circumstantial evidence. And as a criminologist, I do not feel that that's irrelevant at all. We have seen many high profile cases that, that move in favor of the prosecution with the circumstantial evidence. We have his car description. We have uh, phone pings directly in the area. It will be forthcoming upon trial that he reached out on social media platforms to more than one victim. There are photos of, of two of the victims on his phone. Yes, I know, I understand as a criminologist, we'll classify that as circumstantial, but the whole wheelhouse of A to Z and everything coming full circle, I don't think we need the knife. I think there's going to be enough evidence here against the suspect. And uh, people in the chat are saying that uh, they are ordering Stacey Chapin's book, which is a good thing, a uh, children's book. Um, to you, Darby, uh, very well-known criminal profiler named John Kelly was interviewed. And by the way, Fox News Digital uh, has done amazing reporting on Brian Koberger. Uh, and they talked to him about this front row seat at um, the Margaret Atwood speech. He wrote uh, Handmaid's Tale. And, he, and this profiler says, Brian Koberger did not come here for the author. Um, he came here for the audience. In the photo, Ker Koberger is surrounded by women with very few other male audience members in the room, Kelly notes. In other words, he's an incel. He doesn't like women, but how come he still has to have some kind of distant relationship? I totally believe this guy was always looking. Your, your reaction. So uh, from what we know, that does make perfect sense, right? And it's it's quite purposeful, likely, that he was in the front row, in the middle, in an audience of women. And that kind of goes to his arrogance, right? That, you know, you haven't, and, and I think he had didn't have the success with women that he that he wanted or the relationships early on. We do know he was heavy. That might've been in high school a problem. He wasn't as attractive as the quarterback in, if we kind of take it that way. And so he was making it very clear, like you all think you've got something, just wait. Here I am and just you women wait. And I think it's very purposeful and it does, it does say a lot about that. And Darby, just keep you on point here with uh, with this comment from IA again. She's a psychoanalyst, so I'm uh, 
I'm uh, <laughs> looking at all her comments here. Uh, and she asked, do you think the alleged killer was using reaction formation and he unconsciously desired these women, but aggression felt safer to him? Uh, did she make a, a point here? You know, again, it's really hard to know without um, knowing him, but I would tend to say it wasn't unconscious. I think it was more purposeful. I, I don't think he could have followed through with so many different pieces if it was unconscious. I mean, that implies that that is a more impulsive act. This we kind of see built, especially the more evidence we get. There's kind of a case built for his view of women and kind of his notion that he was going to get back at society, if you will, in that way. So I don't believe it was a reaction formation that was unconscious. Dr. Roger Rhodes, by the way, Beach Mom, I am a twin and I have twins. I could not imagine losing my twin or my babies, losing their sibling. Uh, that is someone no one wants to think about. Something I do want to think about is this. I am not T-Pain. Uh, this is my first live. It better not be your last. So thank you for joining us. Uh, Raj, Dr. Raj yeah. to me, uh, this yeah. profiler went on and he said uh, about Brian Koberger in this in this uh, uh, at this speech, he said he's sitting in the front. He likes to ask or give the extravagant answers to the questions. Uh, John Kelly said of Koberger, who once claimed to have won a competitive extemporaneous speaking championship. He'll answer them in a very upper class way. And he goes on. He says he saw these girls somewhere. These types of guys would be looking, stalking, peeping at them through that hill out in the back there, meeting in Moscow. Um, does he make sense to you? Yeah, I think when you look at abusers, OK, of children and of other people, the element of grooming really strikes me on this guy. And that certainly when he went to this presentation, certainly wasn't about the author, but it was about it'd be all women. And that that was a place where he could he could feel powerful in I, I got something and you guys don't know and I'm more evil than you are. And uh, also kind of get the vibe of the girls in the room. And I think that's. Uh, what he moved to uh, and he'd found success in, okay, I'm going to keep having, doing this lifestyle, doing this way as a way of feeling superior to females. And I think that, that the, the, the final act was the period at the end of the sentence. And, and he was in grooming the environment to find where he could victimize and feel the most powerful. And it's real interesting that he used a way of killing that was incredibly personal. You know, I mean, he could have shot him. I mean, he could have he done a lot of things uh, to end the Rod, life. Rod, do, do you think that he, uh, as Dr. Goodman just, uh, uh, you know, basically uh, asserted that, that he does have the knife somewhere that he would not have. I love know. that. I love that. Have the knife somewhere. You, you agree? Bet, man. That's, hey, the knife's a trophy. Yeah. 
It was, it, I loved when that was said. I thought that was yeah. dead so, on. So what, yeah. you think it's hidden in his ceiling or somewhere along the way where he thinks he's one day he's going to go back and be able to retrieve it and, and you know, well, hold that, on to he it? Had, he doesn't think they were going to catch him, convict him. No. Hmm. Come back to it. it that was, he was going to go to it after he visited his parents. That That's an eerie it, thought. Oh yeah. man, this guy is out the box. Come on now, let's <laughs> let's not try to frame him as anywhere close to sane. I mean, he couldn't find sane in a bright room. He's not well. But yeah, I love that the knife's still there somewhere, and he knows. Man, I agree with that one hundred percent because that fits that crowd, and he's part of that crowd. Yeah, Doctor Goodman, Pam Hart Young. Hello, Joel and SCS. My daughter and grandson live in Moscow, Idaho, a place that's near and dear to our hearts. And uh, Papa Bear is usually on here, as is Cindy Hollenbeck. Uh, shout out to them. It is a two-minute drive from King Road. I was on the phone with her when the order to shelter in place went out that a.m. This case is so tragic. Uh, it is even it is beyond that. Um, to you, Dr. Goodman, this same profiler, John Kelly, uh, finish this interview by saying, I just want to hear what this guy's explanation, meaning Koberger is on how his DNA ended up on a K bar knife sheath under Maddie's body. He doesn't have a shot in the world unless he has some kind of ex explanation. Um, how do you think um, he's going to have to explain it away somehow? And how is that going to happen? Do you think? Right. Well, we always want to be fair, right, in our criminal justice system and process to both sides. But truly, Joel and our esteemed colleagues and, and esteemed audience members, what could it possibly logically, legally, reasonably be? This it's is an alien issue. This is coming <laughs> from outer space. Come on. We're in 2023. A tiny aliens came in and placed this. <laughs> that is what I'd expect from this crazy crap. That's no, the Dr. Raj I know right there. Now everyone's experiencing the Dr. Raj effect. <laughs> yeah, I think they have really no foundation. We go back to, you know, I, I created a theory. I, I have two theories on this as to why potentially did this individual do what he did or what he's alleged to have done. You know, it's a theory jar, J-A-R, jealousy, anger, revenge. I think all three elements apply here based on our earlier conversations and submissions from the panel experts. I think this individual was jealous of all of our victims. He really throughout his whole lifetime as a 28 year old, I believe, just felt apart from rather than a part of. He was angry that he really didn't have the socialization network of our four victims. And I think ultimately he took revenge. Why? Because yes, potentially he wanted to have a girlfriend and maybe one, two, or three of the female victims he reached out to for some type of friendship or association. And, and the next theory I would have would be he was so deeply immersed. I'm not going to say he was so smart. I know he wants to think he was so smart, but I'll just say he was immersed in the curricula. And we all know that when you get to that level of, of PhD doctoral study, there's a lot of case study. So I think he really became fascinated with, intrigued by the likes of Dahmer and Bundy and Dennis Rader. And, and I agree with Dr. Roger and, and Dr. Darby that, you know, he just thought he was smarter than everybody. He would get away with it. I think he wanted to conduct 
his own case study, his personal study to show that he could do this. And I believe if he was not caught as a alleged mass murderer, he would have gone on to be a serial killer. Yeah. Um, Sally Vela. Is there a, a, a mix of the two that you just mentioned? I think so, Dr. Roger. Um, I think if that's it, that's it. I love both of them. I don't love one more than the other. I love them both. Thank you. I mean, it's just all of our years of study, right? We're all, you know, very involved in our field and, and we'd like to be able to reasonably explain some of this, even though I know it's an oxymoron, you know, us talking or our audience members interacting, we're all logical, reasonable people. So therefore it's challenging to get into the mind of somebody like this, but I, I think it could be a combination of, of what we just shared. Uh, Dr. Goodman, this always comes up, and I'm wondering if there, if you've ever come across any kind of research or anything that points to the veracity of this. Sally Vela says, I noticed that new rapist, he's, an acu he's accused, he's not convicted yet, uh, named Matthew Nilo, 35. He committed these crimes when he was like 18, 19, back in 2007 and 8. Uh, I noticed that he has weird eyes, too, like Koberger. Like he's seen horrible crimes. Is there anything to this notion that like a serial killer's eyes, that's that's tangible or real? Right. I mean, there could be something. What, what is the saying? The eyes are the window to the soul. We, we could reference um, Ted Bundy. We look at his eyes. You know, I think what happens more so than, let's say, our aesthetic of their eyes is this just nonstop, almost obsessive, compulsive, repeated thinking, planning, premeditation. It's a constant for these individuals who we classify as mass murderers, serial murderers. And then we, it manifests into, you know, this outward image, but I really do think it's all within their, their mindset. They want to do this. They plan it very carefully, very methodically with the time, the place, the victimology, the selectivity and their weapon. And, and Dr. Roger said it, and I agree, you know, the fact that he chooses the knife also, that is very different in our field than, than choosing a gun. Choosing a knife means there is close proximity, there's touch, there's absolute humiliation, degradation and violation. And it's personal. That's and it's personal. Yeah. Hey, yeah. He had to put his hands on those people and cut them you know boy that if, if revenge isn't a flavor in that boy let me tell you when you really want to kick it you kick it and and he does and all the eyes and all that i think birds of a feather flock together i think that the other birds that come after bundy and the other crowd have watched bundy they they've obsessed about all the weird people and so if, if I want to look like a vampire, I want to look like Bella Lugosi. And so I, I make an effort to change me to look like that, to whatever I believe is the, the core issue. And I think yeah. that's a bigger issue than everybody with weird eyes is a, is a rapist or a serial. No, because there's a lot of people got weird eyes that they're just regular people. Yeah. <laughs> and and there have been comparisons, of course, to uh, BTK, otherwise known as Dennis Rader. And uh, I've become friends with his daughter, Carrie, who's been on the show a bunch of times. Um, and, you know, even she has a difficult time kind of figuring out what part of that might be actually him uh, adopting some of BTK's behavior and what's coincidence and what simply is not. Um, 
Trilly Fly here. I set my alarm to make this show live. Love SES. Hello from Washington State. That's where you got me. It's three hours early. It's 4.30 in the afternoon. What are you setting the alarm for? Um, <laughs> sound like me. I, I, I can't make it through the day without a nap because uh, it's a combination of anxiety and kids, and that makes you uh, very tired. Do you know what that means? What is that, Rod? You... Probably sleep apnea. What's your take? No, you have some psychological serial killer issues. <laughs> you sleep in the middle of the day. See, that's a crap. That's ridiculous. You know? <laughs> No, it's just you need to refresh until you take a nap. Raj, Good I need move. video sessions with you, but you got to get better Wi-Fi first. Um, <laughs> Claire says, no way he confessed to his dad. Uh, Barbara says, I agree with Dr. Goodman. Of course he has it, meaning the knife. And then ride on Josephine, not discarded, but hidden. Um, so... STS weighing in as well. I promise you we're going to get to three other people as well, but uh, Brian Koberger is, you know, one of the stories of, uh, of sadly, of our generation and uh, a little bit more to go with him. So he, uh, again, this was broken by Fox News Digital. He had to fill out a job application for a security position, and he had to write stuff. Uh, and he writes down, <laughs> Darby, excuse me, that he has special special skills that included rigorous punching workouts and a year of youth law enforcement. And he goes on to say, I boxed after school every day at the Jesse Harris Boxing Gym on 209 next to Big Cheese Pizza when it was still open. I also attended a year of the law enforcement program uh, on and on. Um, is this much ado about nothing or is this a guy that needs to let people know that, you know, he's a boxer, that he's got special skills, that he's better than other people? What's what's what are you reading between the lines here? I think there it's I, I have some skills. I know what I'm doing. I can control other people. I have some power over them. I think as we look at his background, as he growing up, that he didn't feel very empowered. So I think in this application, he's sort of pulling it together, saying, I've got something. Look at me. I can do this. I I really am a powerful person. Um, Raj, he goes on in this job application and he says, I was a boxer and I'm still a runner. I believe dedication and perseverance are the most important skills learned for my activities. Dedication and perseverance. He says, I lost 130 pounds at age 15 into age 16 whilst attending school at such and such high school. I believe this is proof that I have the required dedication to be successful. So now he's boasting about his weight loss, saying like, you know, uh, and, and he does sound a little holier than now. How do you read it? The weaker a person is in inside is how grandiose that person is going to be out in public. So it's a good reflection, a counter-reflection, okay? It's really what you're seeing, that did he think what he wrote down was his truth? Yeah. Was it the truth? Well, no. But that was, that was I think, a way of him maintaining his, his, his struggles. You know, I think he's always been struggling, and this is just the end of the struggle. Uh, but the application was how he operated 
in his reality. I'm this, I can persevere. I'm great. I'm surprised he didn't say he ran for the Olympics. You know, we've seen that. We've seen people kind of give about their life and what they've done, and they get caught eventually, and oh, it's bad. But at the time, wow, you know, if somebody can't prove them wrong, they're geniuses. They're all that good. And he, he wanted to be hired, so he just made up his version of the truth. But in truth, he was in real life the opposite of that. He was a loser. He had been put down, you know, and he it put him in a in a place to where he needed revenge, you know, to satisfy the the hole he had dug himself into. Mm. Uh, it's an interesting way, uh, you know, that is kind of the opposite uh, internally from uh, what he was presenting externally. Tali yeah. again in Israel. Uh, Dr. Goodman, this is to you. The new motions from the defense to block the media and court cameras. Um, there was just a motion filed. I'm not going to get into all that today. We'll get into that tomorrow with Detective Phil Waters and Scott Duffy from the FBI. But what, what do you think about the fact that they're trying to uh, prevent cameras from the courtroom? Uh, Dr. Goodman is someone who studies this. Sure. Well, I will answer from both sides in fairness. I, I see the points on, on either position. So if we go with cameras in the courtroom, and certainly this is such a compelling case and, and in the public domain and, and our audience members and people worldwide are following this and for the right intention, for information and knowledge and people care, you know, our citizens care. And I think they did a great job in their tip lines and submitting details, which ultimately culminates into helping law enforcement and the criminal justice process. So I could see the advantages of having the cameras in the courtroom. Of course, the disadvantage is that, that we proceed with the tenant in the criminal justice system, that an individual is innocent until proven guilty, but sometimes in the public domain, as we go hour by hour, as new information is shared day by day, you know, it's human behavior. We may formulate an opinion that may or may not be accurate. So I will, you know, just maintain that both sides are, are fair and valid. Should we see the cameras in the courtroom? Then, of course, many of us will be following for the intent of of being informed and educated and learning. And if the cameras are not in the courtroom, then certainly information will be shared, perhaps more intermittently, sporadically, and ultimately we wait for a final outcome. And Dr. Raj, Michelle Lee brings up a point that's occasionally yeah. people do bring up, and I think it's somewhat <laughs> fair, crucifying BK before the trial. This is wrong and nonsensical. Um, you know, the old Howard Stern uh, promo was people who love Howard Stern listen like 39 minutes a day. Those who hate Howard Stern listen an hour and 57 minutes. So uh, <laughs> I'm wondering if Michelle is like that. Um, not calling her a hater, but love haters. It's all good. Um, but are, is what we're doing right now nonsensical or do you think there's enough evidence there to kind of and it's in the public eye enough to be doing what we're doing? I think you have to start with him. What's he looking for? And I think by saying no cameras, we've already seen court cases recently where they didn't have a camera, they still convicted the person. So I don't think he's trying to get off that way. I think it's kind of a, a counter move. If I say no cameras, he believes he will get more attention. 
So this is, is, is his counter way of saying, you know, just like saying, don't look. Then everybody wants to look. Don't have cameras. Oh, what's going on with the case? You know, he, he's going to squeeze this for all he can. And I think the no camera deal is is part of that. By the way, quick shameless plug. If you missed it last night, we did a, a show on a possible serial killer in Portland. And the panel last night was as good as this panel. Really amazing. Uh, they shed a lot of interesting insight. Definitely uh, worth a watch if, uh, <coughs> if you're interested in that. Uh, meanwhile, I am not T-Pain. Uh, to you, Darby, what does the panel think Koberger feels about having a lawyer? Again, we're trying to go into the criminal <laughs> mind here, his specifically, uh, that is a woman. How do you think he feels about having a lawyer that is a woman? Do you think it is difficult for him to have a woman defend him uh, as Darby tries to collect herself? I'm with sorry. <laughs> it's all good. That's what you get for drinking. This is live TV, baby. Yeah. Live TV. I wonder what's in that bottle, Joel. Wait a minute. We thought it was water. Maybe. You know, by the way, as a quick side note, while Darby collects herself, I thought I asked her if she's in New York because it looks when I first saw this with my bad eyes, like the 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 wallpaper paint, whatever that is to the right, it looks like a like a skyscraper out a window to me when you look at it that way. <laughs> Uh, and no. then I realized it's just a corner of a wall. But um, just a Darby, are, are you able to answer? Uh, okay, I'm getting better. Um, <laughs> no, I, I'm i in here because I needed the landline. The Wi-Fi wasn't coming through, oh, I so I had to plug into a landline. <laughs> but um, I do think it's difficult for him to have a woman as a lawyer. I think there's, a, as, as we've discussed, there's a deep-seated um, disdain for women. And so I think that that is a difficult um, thing for him. And I don't think there's a lot of respect there. Mm. Um, and I think, but, but I think it might be purposeful. I mean, um, you can you can speak more to that from a criminologist perspective, but um, I do think that um, maybe that's a, that's something like it'll look good. He doesn't hate women. Look at him. He's got a woman attorney. So I think that that might be some of the strategy there. But I but I think he's too um, disturbed where it comes to women that 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 will work well. Uh, shout out to Jessica Newton, a new YouTube member. Let's move move it along so we can get through uh, all four. That was one. Got a ways to go here. Um <laughs> Lori Vallow Daybell. So her sentencing is uh, set for July 31st. Um, there's going to be victim impact statements. Uh, Dr. Goodman, to you, do you think she's going to speak? There's been speculation. Do you think she's going to show any sort of remorse at her sentencing hearing? I don't think so, Joel and Dr. Raj, Dr. Darby. I think this woman is really somebody who viewed her children as an inconvenience, an impediment. I know we have um, moms on the panel, dads within our audience, and, and myself included, that, that we love our children unconditionally. We don't put the bullet in them, we take the bullet for them. And, and I truly think that, that she herself was so narcissistic that it just became you know, me, myself, and I when it came to her, and she wanted to start her new life, and she had a new husband, and I think she really viewed the children not as human beings. So I don't see her taking the um, the stand at any point. I, I don't think you know anybody's really 
empathetic toward her, sympathetic about her, because as a mother, you you love your children. As a father, you protect them no matter what. And um, I don't think it would bode well for her as any kind of credible individual to be speaking on her own behalf. Uh, Dr. Rod. Wait a minute. Let me, let me ask one thing. Sure. A prophet only says things one time. She has <laughs> prophesied. She has said one thing. She doesn't need to repeat herself. It would invalidate what she had said before. She's going to jail as a prophet. Mm. That's what she thinks, I think. Um, oh, I believe it. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Um, Dr. Raj, I would only ask you this question this way. Who's the bigger nut job, Chad Daybell or Lori Valadaybell? And who was leading who? <laughs> oh, buddy, it's a tied race is what it is. <laughs> there is no leader. They're, they're roped together and running together down the track. Man, they're, ooh, buddy. And, you know, it just shows that there's just a lot, a lot of sick people out there. And you have to be vigilant, you know? Don't assume, oh, everybody's a good guy. No, not everybody's a good guy. And if you think something, if you see something, you, you need to raise it up right then and say it immediately. This, this pausing and evaluating is not your friend. It opens the door for weird people to be weirder. Uh, Michelle Keough, special shout out. Our daughter lives in Moscow and her son and girlfriend are in Pullman right next door. That's where Washington State is. This hit too close to home. My heart hurts for all. Glad to find your channel, Real Stuff. Thank you for finding us and uh, please share with some friends. That'd be great. Um, ooh, Darby, back to you here. So April Raymond, uh, she was a close friend of Lori Val Daybell and she was interviewed uh, just recently um, post-trial, uh, and she was asked about, um, you know, number one, how she was coping, and she said that it was a shattering experience to testify, to be part of this, um, and she said she is still unsure about what had transpired or what was the catalyst for change. She says that I think Lori was kind of at a crossroads in her life for a lot of reasons. I think she was unhappy in her marriage. She had recently become a grandmother. She had met Chad Daybell. Some people have joked uh, saying that it was the worst uh, midlife crisis ever. Um, can you wrap your head around what what precipitated this maybe? Because she lived her life for a long time, at least seemingly somewhat normal, and then it all went off a cliff. You know, I, I, as her friend, it would be hard to see because you've really engaged and you've bought in and you've given them some trust, right? Um, and then all of this goes wrong. But I don't actually think it just came out of the blue. This kind of narcissism, if you're a narcissist, everything is good as long as you're getting what you want and, and, and you feel like people see you in a good light, right? Then everything is fine. Um, it's when things don't seem to fit anymore and there's no uh, you're not getting what you want. Your needs are not met or someone is looking ill upon you. And then that's where you have to disconnect. So I think it, it kind of tells us that her friend is normal and she's really pretty pathological. And that's where we see the narcissism come through. So if you are a normal person, it's really hard to understand this. Like, oh my gosh, how could things have gone so wrong? She's a new grandmother. She's got a new husband. This is all good. 
but that's not what a narcissist sees at all. It's all about me all the time. And you're either adding to what I need or you're taking away. And there's a very hard line there. So I don't think it was a midlife crisis as such. I think it happened in midlife because too many things were dissonant. She's done with them. They were just not letting her have what she wanted anymore. And that, that I think is different. It just coincidentally uh, came at midlife. Well put. Uh, a lot of the comments lag behind, so I'm going to I'm gonna mix it up now back with some Koberger stuff. Uh, I'm not T-Pain again. Uh, to you, Dr. Goodman, Koberger seems to have an inflated sense of self. Does the panel think he is a narcissist? That is uh, question number one to you. And what are the odds this was his first offense, in your opinion? Sure. So so really two great questions. Um the first of which I would use narcissistic, grandiose, but I'll also say hedonistic. So when we classify somebody as a hedonistic killer, especially again, mass murder or serial murder, as hard as it is for the rest of us, again, the, the reasonable thinkers, the, the logical thinkers, these are people, let's be clear, they derive pleasure from beginning, middle until the end. They have pleasure in the planning stage and the thinking about it and putting all the pieces together, and then the, the carrying out of, of the tragedy and the heinous, horrible uh, murders themselves. And then even after the fact, I can assure you, they are very fond of any type of mention of their name, any media attention, any discussion, they follow it very carefully. So I think all three apply, narcissistic, grandiose, as well as hedonistic. And um, as far as the the secondary question, can you repeat it, by the way? <laughs> uh, was this his first offense? Oh, OK, thank you for that. So I'm going to say no, it was not. Um, if he were a serial killer, then it would have been crime one and then maybe a few weeks of um, a pause and then crime two and so on and so forth. Because remember, and, and, and the viewers know this, but we'll just remind that there is a distinction between the serial and mass murderer. The serial murderer is, is still perpetrating three, four or more uh, homicides over a period of time at different locations. However, the mass murderer, three, four or more at the one time, the one place. So I truly believe that this is this individual's first mass crime. I don't think there were any others preceding. I know there had been speculation because there was a death of a woman uh, at or near the, um, you know, Koberger community and, and law enforcement was potentially thinking, could this be related? I don't think it's related at all. I think this was his first killing. If he was not caught as, as this alleged mass murderer, I do think he would have gone on to perpetrate more acts of terror and, and now have become a, a potential serial killer. Uh, Dr. Raj from Joey yeah. B. Uh, lots of people, he says, might be classified as losers. Uh, they do not commit murder. What makes Brian Koberger different enough from other losers to kill? Well, number one, he's mentally ill. And not all losers are mentally ill. Okay? So he's a loser who's mentally ill. Okay? And so that's what happened to him is he went off the rails long ago he kept within bounds of okayness in society and it was just too hard for him to hold on you know it's not unusual for people who are mentally ill to operate for a while within the structure 
but they it's like they're emotionally holding their breath. Yeah. Okay. And what we saw was what happens when you exhale if you're mentally ill. That's what happened to him. And that that's different from a loser. A loser may be holding their breath and and seek help and adjust what they need to do. They get hairstyle, get clothing, get therapy. They do all these things uh, that are acceptable ways of adjusting to a situation. So that hopefully I wasn't too wide on that, but that that's where I see it. Is you were you were just help. right. You were just not wide or wide enough, I guess. Uh, Jersey Jen <laughs> Castaldi. Uh, wish I had Darby in my life when I was raising my kids. Good thing I started out way too late. So I do have Darby. Uh, I need a therapist because I started too late. Um, well, wait a he, minute. The one thing I want to ask Darby, do the people in your life think you got it? That I got it right with kids? That, that any of us got it. You know, I, I mean, uh, obviously you're very smart, but I, I what I've noticed is, the people closest to me think I'm the dumbest. <laughs> you, know? you know what? I don't know. I'm going to have to look into that. I think I have said to my kids at one point or another, you know, I'm not stupid. <laughs> but, um, yes. You know, that's a great question. Yeah, it's, Darby, it, well, it's normal. We'll, it's yeah. normal. we'll have to get your husband or kids on next time and have them address that for us. Amen. Um, oh, that would be interesting. Get the four <laughs> kids on here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Toy White says BK is giving me Vandersloat vibes. Not kidding. That's interesting just because Joran Vandersloat is on an FBI flight up from Aruba as we speak. He probably landed. There was all this hubbub about him being too badly injured in a prison fight. And then there was a photo of him today uh, being escorted by the FBI or Interpol back to the United States. He was literally smiling at the camera, um, you know, just kind of rubbing it in. Thank, th thankfully, he's going to face justice here on uh, these extortion charges. But my point is, he looked perfectly fine. Uh, this happened like a week ago where he was badly injured, but it looks like it was just a con. Uh, he is fine, and they are shipping his behind uh, up here. Um, Debbie, and then we'll move back to Valo, and then we got to keep moving forward here. We're never going to get through it. Uh, Margaret Mary, uh, do you think that Brian Koberger has – mommy issues not that i have any but anyway um do you think Koberger does you know i don't think so i just think his issues stem from being apart from rather than being a part of any type of acceptance group socialization we don't know he's 28 years old do we know of any even platonic male friend, let's say, who was consistently in his life, who he could have gone to play sports with or interacted, uh, hang out along the way. We don't know that. We don't know of any type of intimacy with the, um, you know, with any young lady. So I really feel that just along the way in his growth and development, he was always on the outside looking in, wanted to be in, even trying to be in in some kind of college setting. I mean, he did move through the bachelor's degree level, master's degree, so you're interacting with people. But I just think he never fully gained and, and garnered the acceptance that he always desired and would only be attached in such a heinous way to gain attention, especially when he thought he'd get away with it. 
Uh, Sherry's News says Lori Vallow will not speak. She believes her children are in heaven and she will be with them in heaven. She's uh, still in love with Chad, so will not say boo, uh, which is interesting. Um, and then that followed here by uh, in order for her to be remorseful, she has to recognize that she's done something wrong and she won't. And then kind of to Dr. Rogers point, uh, goddesses don't respond to impact statements. So uh, the consensus is she will not speak uh, and uh, we'll see if that plays out. Darby, back to uh, Valo, and then we're going to move on after this one. Um, her friend April Raymond said that she noticed that Lori Vallo got more aggressive uh, in 2019 and kind of started, as she said, to apply the pressure a little bit more and was really a lot more aggressive with her beliefs and trying to persuade me. And it just wasn't something that made any sense to me. She looked differently. She was speaking differently. Uh, when someone transforms into this, evil for lack of a better way to put it um is there like a physiological change potentially as well so she's speaking differently and all these things are happening well i think that um that's a great observation and i think the loss of control all of a sudden i don't have you know i'm not as you know i don't have it i'm not as omnipotent as i think i am is what then starts to create the internal rage and you have an inability to disconnect from that. And we do see that where as kids, it's easier when they're young, three, four, five, to really control them and have your way. But as they get older, they become more of a problem, right? Because then they start to develop minds of their own. And for someone who is um, as narcissist, as pathologically narcissistic, I, I think, you know, we all have a little bit of narcissism, but as pathologically narcissistic as she was, it became a problem. And then you would see that, you know, I don't know about the physical change, but the rage, the anger, the short temper, the I just can't the lack of tolerance would be part of that losing control. Uh, Leslie P, thank you for this super sticker. While we think we have an opinion before trial from media, I've been challenged to rethink my opinion when watching trials aired. So I feel let us be challenged. We all learn along the way and the jury usually gets it right. That is uh, the American justice system. If you rely on a jury of uh, our peers to make the right call, and uh, they almost always do. Uh, Baby Doll, a friend of the show, uh, back to who's more of a, a nut job. 50-50 uh, on Chad and Lori, uh, followed by Callie Dime, who says Chad, followed by Sally Vela, who says Lori wins by a nose, followed by Lorna, who says Lori wins for sure. So uh, we've got a uh, we've we've got a little competition going on here about uh, who's who's a nuttier nut job. And then someone says, don't forget her brother, Alex. He's up there, too. So moving on to Matthew Nilo. He, if you look at a photo of him, is a pretty clean-cut guy who was a lawyer and very recently engaged. Um, he's now accused of sexually assaulting four women in Charlestown in Boston in 2007 and 2008. Uh, he pleaded not guilty on Monday. He was ordered on a half million dollars bail, um, and they caught him with investigative genetic genealogy. Uh, Dr. Goodman you think they ever would have caught this guy? Um, and obviously he's got to go through the judicial system and be tried. But uh, right now he's accused of these serious crimes and the um, probability 
in terms of the DNA uh, is very high that it, it, it was him. Um, would they have ever caught this guy? It happened 15 years ago if it wasn't for what they call investigative genetic genealogy. Right. I, as a criminologist, completely agree with genetic genealogy. Why? Because it doesn't lie. People lie. People can stand in front of a courtroom and raise a right hand and tell a lie and look directly into the eyes of others and, and just tell the lie as if they, they are telling us about the lunch they just had. But genetic genealogy for us in our criminal justice field, I think is huge. Why? Because each of us has our own uh, composition, if you will, compilation of, of saliva, of print, of blood, of hair. All of this combined really, um, I think, is it, it's hard to challenge that. It becomes a very significant um, issue in our criminal justice field. Hmm. Uh, by the way, if you don't mind hitting that like button, it gets the, uh, as my daughter says, which I haven't said in a while, it gets the algorithm chugging. So uh, mm -hmm. it will make her happy. It will make me happy. Uh, and we would greatly appreciate it. Uh, Dr. Raj. So this guy, Matthew Nilo, he's 35 years old, kind of a clean cut looking dude. Um, his fiance was in court. They were just engaged, I think, two or three weeks ago. She was uh, clutching onto rosary beads. It might be a little too late for that. He was arraigned on three counts of aggravated rape, kidnapping, assault with intent to rape. Um, Raj, how does someone commit really hideous, disgusting, horrible crimes and then just goes to college, goes to law school and uh, gets engaged? How does that happen? You learn to fly under the radar. You know, how do you smuggle drugs in America? You fly under the radar and drugs come in. How do you keep the, the uh, judicial system off your back? You fly under the radar. You look good. You sound good. You smell good. So that, that creates doubt. And so when people kind of go, I wonder if, or they see something, then they check their judgment of that. And so that was a way uh, where that, or that was a style he used to create doubt and get away with stuff. Uh, is, do I believe that's his quote-unquote true self? No. I think that's his sick self and how he's learned to, to, to do what he did. You know, he, he first put out going on this, this uh, educational track, getting the clean-cut look. That's all part of the, the scheme. And it's to keep people off his track. But I love, yeah, you know, DNA is the 20... 23 equivalent of fingerprints. That's how anything that helps us catch somebody, uh, yay. You know, but they still caught people before there were fingerprints. They still caught people before there was DNA. Uh, you know, it, it's still the hard work of scientists, of policemen, and other people, you know, getting the brick day after day, unheralded, that really catch people in the end. Uh, Rod, back, back to you on this real quick from June, in the month of June. Uh, do you think his family saw warning signs? This is back to Brian Koberger here. Do you think the family enabled him and made excuses for his behavior, uh, like in the Dahmer case? Jeffrey Dahmer's father was very defensive of him. Um, is there any way that they wouldn't have noticed that he's uh, not all there? Who's that to? 
Yeah. No, that that was for Rod. Rod, are you still there? Oh, he's, he's a loser. They they that that was the lens that they saw him from. He elicited in his family sadness. We're sad for him. We wish he was better. Okay. Uh, so could he easily have gotten away with? Yeah, yeah. That that was how he did. It. He used his deficiency as a way of eliciting. Uh, sympathy from the crowd, and once he had developed that lens for his family, he could do whatever he wanted, and so they wouldn't even notice the fact that he might do something illegal or strange because they couldn't see it through the lens for, uh, of the family that he created, so that he could get away with stuff. It was an and, adaptive uh skill. Yeah, we're going back and forth, by the way, uh, and we're back to Koberger from the accused serial rapist. <laughs> Toy White is directing this at you, Dr. Raj, because uh, you called him mentally ill, and Toy White says BK is not mentally ill. He's evil. Your response? <laughs> half a dozen, six or half of the dozen is what I say. You know, that, that yeah, yes and no. I mean, it's the lens you look at it. You know, if if you're looking at it from a spiritual way, yeah, he's evil. If you're looking at it from a scientific way, he's mentally ill. You know, what lens are you looking from? Is what I would say to that question. You know, and then, they're they're both right, but they're different. Yeah, uh, Patricia Ann or Patricia Ann Ryan uh, for Dr. Goodman. Uh, where would BK hide the weapons? Now we're taking it the next step. Um, I mean, from a criminologist perspective. Um, you know, Carrie uh, Rawson told us that her father hid things, um, I think, in a floorboard in the basement um, of the home. But where, from a, uh, you know, a killer's perspective, where's a place where he would put it that he would feel is safe? Sure. I, I really think it's in close proximity to the Koberger home. I think he planned on revisiting it. I, I don't think we're talking about miles away in some wooded area. I think it's within a close radius, whether truly in the interior of the home, and it could be floorboards or walls and such, or it'll be in the yard buried somewhere and only he would know. And um, that's my thought there. Hmm. Um, so Darby to you, back to the serial rapist. Now we're going back and forth, so everyone actually has to pay real attention now, um, which is sometimes difficult to do, especially later in the evening. But um, we had um, Wendy Murphy on, a very, very, very smart uh, human being. She's a lawyer out of Boston, um, and she annoyed some people. That's a nice way of putting it, because she said that rapists are often – uh, and, and she's found rapists to almost always be people who are entitled. Um, and she spoke about Ivy League universities. Um, I, I think she was speaking, obviously, in regards to Matthew Nilo, who went to a private school in Boston. He went to Boston Latin. He went to the University of Wisconsin. Um, is there some element of truth about the fact that maybe he was entitled growing up that led to this sort of behavior? There's photos of him urinating on the dormitory floor, thinking it's funny, um, you know, like a real frat boy. But what about this notion of entitlement being coupled with becoming a rapist? 
Well, Joel, I, I would I would expand. I wouldn't limit it to Ivy League. Um, there are so many rapists that have nothing to do with their education. The notion of entitlement is probably valid, it, but entitlement really has to go with to do with how you feel and see the world, right? Like you you think you have more of a right or you're better than others is really entitlement. It can definitely be tied to a monetary piece if you're um, raised in a very privileged environment, but it can also be you're entitled because you think you're better than other people. So it doesn't have to have that monetary piece. So although she's brilliant and I would not want to you know, argue any legal pieces with her. I don't agree that in that it is a rapist is necessarily has anything to do with an Ivy League profile person an entitlement in in a monetary sense. It can yeah. be, but it can also be much broader. It's a mindset. Yep. The mindset. And uh, it's all over the country. You it's know? like having spoiled kids, right? right. Well, it, it, the thing is, is that, you know, People gravitate to things that allow them to live out the box. And that, that's everywhere. And you do see like style behavior in different places. Do I think I would love to say, yeah, the Boston people and the, the Ivy League, they're the problem, especially since I grew up in Oklahoma. Uh, but I saw a bunch of hillbillies act out, too. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. By the way, uh, Adam Bluefire in Spain, are there any ex-girlfriends of Koberger that have come out and spoken about him? I don't think he has ex-girlfriends, but there are ex-acquaintances who have, and they have uh, all said that he was peculiar, odd. Uh, one woman who went on a online, it was set up on a date through an online app, said that she actually pretended to be vomiting to get away from him. Um, so uh, I can tell you that. Back to this accused serial rapist, and then one more quick one, and We'll call it a night eventually um, to you, Dr. Goodman, uh, just kind of running through this accused serial rapist, Matthew Nilo's attacks. Uh, the first one was a 23 year old woman. Um, he offered to give her a ride in the car, then attacks her in like a grassy area. Second woman, also 23 years old, kind of the same M.O. Uh, he flashed a knife there. Thirty six year old woman. Uh, is the third attack. She gets in the car. Um, he drives her to Terminal Street. This is where all these crimes happened, a place called Terminal Street in Charlestown. He tackles her to the gun to the ground, but now instead of a knife, he says that he has a gun to her back. And then he tries to tackle a fourth woman who's now older. So we go 23, 23, 30-something, and now 44. Um, he tackles her while she's running uh, and assaults her, uh, grabs her from behind, she poked his eye, and that's how they got some DNA, too, with a glove that she had on. Um, but what about, what do you make of sort of the progression from, you know, starting with a threat of a knife to then a threat of a gun to then tackling? And also, is there anything to the age increase? Right. So just to go back on, on the crime itself, remember, unlawful sexual intercourse without another's consent. So for these rapists um, from all backgrounds and walks of life, I understand you're, you know, there was the comment about the Ivy League. But remember, th these could be, you know, any age group of, of the rapist. And then 
with whom do they want to target? It really is about the humiliation, the power, the control, the degradation. So they tend to not care. All they want is to garner just complete and utter control. And it's just such a disgusting crime. I mean, next to murder, rape is is just something that completely depletes one of, of any sense of, of worth and value. And and also just as a commentary here too about victim blaming, I, I'm, you know, always alarmed when sometimes in our court systems, uh, comments will be made, oh, but look what she's wearing. And if she didn't do this, no, that's not the issue. Nobody deserves the right to be sexually violated by anybody. So, so I just wanted to say that. In terms of methodology, not uncommon for these individuals who are in a state of, of desperation and just want to perpetrate the act quickly, they will do different things, they'll say different things. And again, back to the narcissist, just me, myself, and I wanting to do what, what he wants to do. And look at this, Jersey Jen Castaldi, new YouTube member, shout out to Jersey. Um, so moving on to the fourth and final, we have made it to the fourth and final case study here with this amazing panel that is looking, peeling back the criminal mind. Um, this person's name, I have no idea if I'm pronouncing it correctly, Young Yu Young. I don't think you pronounce a J. She is uh, from South Korea. She, Dr. Roger Rhodes, is allegedly a massive true crime fan. She recently admitted to killing and dismembering a woman, quote unquote, out of curiosity about murder. Your reaction. Sickness has no sex. That's my thought. Okay. <laughs> so she's a woman. So she dismembers and kills people. Ooh, we never heard of that. You know? Yeah. No, I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's there, uh, and some people are better at holding it in, uh, getting help for it, acknowledging it, working through it. Uh, but, but weird is, is asexual. Being not well and wanting to harm people is non-sexual. It's not, even rape is non-sexual. It's, it's about other things than sex. That's what's so hard about it. And that's why the victim deal in the past was such a deal, because they wanted to connect it with sex. But it's not about sex. You know, it's Rock, about you, other stuff. Have you seen a picture of this woman by any chance? Me? Um, yes. Yeah, she looks oriental. If you, if you, all, if you all have not seen it, uh, you need to Google the photo. Uh, she, she also looks like... Um, she could not swat a fly and kill it. She looks so like meek. Look, she, she first of all, she I think she's four foot nine. She looks like she's you know under ninety pounds. I mean, she just doesn't fit any kind of vision of what I would ever have in my mind of what a killer would look like, Raj. Yeah, and I and I love that uh, that idea of. Oh, I said it though. That's why I like it. Under the radar. That, that, that's uh, whoever said that was a genius. Yeah, it's like people. People certainly have got an idea for them to feel comfortable that oh, it's the eyes. Or they look like this or they act like this. But what we're finding out is all shapes and sizes, all sexes, and they do it uh, 
I, I love what came when I was hearing that and how big she was, was the revenge issue. Yeah. What, what better way to get revenge than kill tall people? If I'm a short person, <laughs> if I have women, kill women. You know, it's, it's how the mind, you know, makes sense of stuff. But I love the idea that is that another element of revenge? I think so. I think so. But Elle I Rose. just know that revenge was a height issue. You know, that's a new <laughs> a new term. L. Rose says a baby-faced assassin. Dr. Goodman, you're the uh, uh, criminologist here. So this is how she found her victim. I, I'm I'm sort of fascinated with this myself. By the way, it goes on to say she's a twenty. She's 23 years old. She was obsessed with TV shows and books about crime. Uh, she decided to murder someone from real and then uh, conducted research about how to conceal a body. But to find the victim, uh, she used an app that connects parents with private tutors and contacted the victim by posing as the mother of a ninth grader who wanted to learn English. So she posed as a as a parent, but when she went to this woman's home, she was dressed in a school uniform. And the quote goes on to say that June Young is short and within the with a uniform on, the victim probably mistook her for a middle school student. What is going on here with the psychopathology of this person that's, you know, pretending on one hand on the app to be a parent and showing up dressed like a student and then just literally butchers this woman to death. So what this speaks to for me, Joel, is is the four elements of first-degree murder. So I'm not surprised at all. This is planning. This is premeditation. It's willful. It's with malice. And if anything, when this uh, case goes to trial, I think all of the elements are here just by the description you read. She gave very careful thought to, to a disguise to manipulation, to garnering some type of trust. And and also, by the way, this case reminds me, and, and I'm sure our panelists know, and we'll just remind the um, the STS audience if, if they want to research this further, but Alyssa Bustamante, you know, she was a teenager who literally just violently kills her nine-year-old female neighbor. Why? Because she wanted to have the thrill, her words. And we do have that classification, thrill killers. There are some people, and, and back to Dr. Roger, and I agree with him, gender is, is a non-issue here. It could be the male killers, the female killers, could be teenagers, middle-aged, and sometimes even elderly. And they have a thrill. And, and this Alyssa Bustamante, and I'm sure our killer you just described here, um, at least with Alyssa, she writes in her diary, I just killed someone and it was amazing. Really? Mm. If you do that, and by the way, just as a criminologist, I'll say one more thing. These individuals rarely, and I say rarely, if we just go to data analytics in our field about insanity, just to remind what that legally means, it means the individual doesn't know what he or she is doing and doesn't know what he or she is doing is wrong. It's a very rare outcome in our field, less than 2%. So what you just described for me, I think a jury panel, you know, tears this apart and recognizes every step of the way. She knew what she was doing and she knew what she was doing was wrong. Uh, Catherine Regier in Hawaii, are STS addicts at risk, Darby? Uh, do all the people watching, do they need to worry that their impulses are going to overtake them? That's question number one. 
No, I think they're, <laughs> I think you're good. <laughs> okay. Question number two. Uh, Cynthia says, and this is up your alley, um, is something happening to the brain development in those under 30 years old? This is sort of a serious question to pose because, you know, my kids, every kid that I know is attached to their tablets. You know, their brains are definitely being rewired in, in a different way than ours were, you know. I was forced to read, uh, my dad would force me to read Herman Melville in high school. That was torture, uh, but it helped, it helped out with the SATs. But now uh, these kids are on these tablets all day. There's a lot of talk about isolation. Um, is, is something happening uh, because of the advent of technology and the way the world has shifted? So that's a pretty complicated um, question. And to break it into a couple different pieces, we do know that the brain develops differently when um, one point of contact is really always social media or some kind of computer, right? And we do have the science that shows us that if we're face-to-face, one-on-one, the brain starts to light up in nine different areas and process and feel. And, you know, that's where the eyes can connect and the body language become very important, especially from a young age on. If we're just looking at a computer screen, they do show your brain starts to process in one area. So if we kind of roll that out to people that have been raised so much on computers and screens, the biggest thing that I think we see missing that we have to override is the building of what we call epistemic trust. So that's the ability to distinguish with people who are, who do I trust early on? Is that guy that's picking me up and that I don't know? Can I trust him? Is that person weird? Do I feel someone's coming behind me? We need to develop that in three dimensions at a very early age. And if we short circuit that somehow by thinking a screen is going to do it for us, we're going to have some issues with uh, mental development, bonding, isolation, the ability to know the difference. Like we might do things. You see a lot of Facebook um, or people where they film something that's really disgusting, thinking they'll get a reaction or a lot of likes. That's that disconnect. And that's very disturbing. But as a whole, no, people, it, these are rare situations. These are people that are mentally ill. We do want to watch for it. We want to make sure we hold people accountable. Eye to eye is what counts when you're raising your little kids up forever in a relationship. But I do think it's important that we don't take it too far. Everybody's not crazy and everyone under 30 is not having these issues. Very good to hear, especially since I have three kids under 30. Uh, Existential <laughs> says... something. Yes, you can, Raj. Oh, thank you. Uh, Was Stranger Danger before computers? Uh, I have no idea. I I believe it was. Yes, it was. And it is a, it's a real thing. You know, go with your gut. Like, okay, wait a sec. I sense something. And there is a lot of research on that, um, Dr. Raj, that says when you feel that, act on it. Because... you know, particularly with women or being stalked, uh, there's a there's a lot to that. And and so they were concerned about that before computers even showed up. They Absolutely. were teaching that before computers showed up. Is what. So yeah. quit trying to connect 
Mm. The problem and say, well, it's, everything's computer. All the problems are computers. I I, I think that's monofocus. I think yeah. it's a bigger, multi-leveled area, and it's almost like the idea of survival of the fittest. You know. I- I will quote Roger Rhodes, even though I don't know that you've ever said it, but it sounds like something you would say. Crazy has always been around. That sounds like something yes, Roger Rhodes. Yes, correct? it has. And we have done well to adapt to help people survive. We're a survivalist species. Yeah. And so if computers come in and they create a glitch, I believe humans will come up against that just like there was a time that you could, well, I don't know about you guys, but when I lived in Oklahoma, we never locked the door. You go to bed, you, no lights on, solid dark, out in the boonies. Uh, because why? You didn't think it, you know, he was going to get you. But man, when you go into a metro area, at, you know, I've got 10,000 lights here in, in little Greenville, South Carolina. It's a different <laughs> world. And so we educate up to that. Okay. But what do we got to do to keep ourselves safe? Hmm. Uh, Existential says, true crimers in the chat echoing Darby's sentiment should not feel challenged by young you young. <laughs> don't feel challenged. <laughs> well said. Uh, don't, don't try to out, whatever you do, don't try to outdo her. A uh, couple, one more quick thing about this and we'll wrap it up. Um, so this person, uh, Dr. Goodman uh, in South Korea she brought trash bags and bleach before returning to home where she dismembered the victim. She placed some body parts in a suitcase and took a taxi to the Nakdong River where she dumped the remains. Uh, in order to make it look like the victim had disappeared, she also took the ID card, the wallet. However, this is interesting, the cabbie of all people became suspicious of this woman and called police and then they found bloodstained clothing and that is how they discover her. But man, there was a lot of planning involved here. So um, this is clearly something that she gave a tremendous, tremendous amount of thought to, right? Right, absolutely. But but I think the um, piece you just mentioned, Joel, about the cab driver becoming suspicious, that should just be something I think in the public domain, back to what Dr. Darby and Dr. Raj said about something doesn't look right, sound right, feel right. I mean, that's what we would tell our sons at, at you know, different ages along the development. And we're not asking anybody to be the kid detective or to be the investigator in any way, shape or form. But I do feel strongly as a criminologist that every day we, we meaning all of us, need to be mindful of safety, security and survival. So absolutely, if something doesn't look right, sound right, feel right, that warrants a call to law enforcement to take a look. So I think that's always very important and our safety and survival every day needs to be the focus. Uh, Jerry Conway weighing in about Herman Melville. This would make my dad proud. Uh, she writes, Bartleby is actually pretty great. There's a short story called Bartleby the Scrivener uh, where he always says, I prefer not to. Um, instead of saying no, he says, I prefer not to. And my dad would always say to me, you have choices in life. Just say, I prefer not to. So that just hit home and uh, related, but unrelated. I always wanted to get a giant Mastiff and name it Bartleby, but instead I have a boxer named Ethel. Um, with that, we come to uh, the end of another fascinating show. I want to thank uh, the panel and STS Nation. I am just pulling this up here, but it's not coming up. Um, 
Dr. Debbie Goodman, great to have you back. Uh, she is a professor at St. Thomas University in South Florida. She is a criminologist, a published author, an educator, and former TV show host. Your final thoughts, Dr. Goodman. Well, my final thoughts will always be one of thanks, Joel, to you, Mrs. Waldman, Steve, Dr. Raj, Dr. Darby, and the awesome audience of STS Nation. I, I think these conversations are very important because it helps to educate, it brings clarity, just getting different viewpoints from the panel and from you know the STS members. So we'll see how the criminal justice system moves forward on a lot of this, but I do believe in our system and, and the members who are selected of, of jury panels. I think they're smart individuals. They want to do the right thing. They're devoted, they're dedicated, and yes, evidence is important. Thank you. Uh, Darby, if you can hear that faint sound in the back, that is my four-year-old throwing a you-know-what fit right that. now. So uh, <laughs> I will be in touch with you uh, probably more often than you'd like. Um, it is late here, and I cannot wait to get my studio, which is being, we are building it. Um, it's a tiny little studio, but I cannot wait to get there and get out of my home studio. Uh, anyway, enough about myself. Dr. Roger Rhodes, he is the man. He's a senior therapist at the Pace Center in Greenville, South Carolina, specializing in dysfunctional relationships. He's worked inside the prison system, and I keep saying he's going to be bigger than Dr. Phil and Oprah combined, and he's on his way because he's on STS Nation. Uh, your final thoughts on this, uh, on this discussion, Dr. Raj? I appreciate being on with smart people. Every time I do this show, I learn something and have an aha moment. Again, ladies, you guys rock the world. Man, <laughs> I, I'm smarter by doing this than I would have been if I'd not. And Joel, thank you for the opportunity uh, to, for my education. Raj, I hope that one day you actually learn something from me, but I wouldn't count on it. So at least you have the panel members to, <laughs> right. to lean I, on. I included all. I was just emphasizing the latest. And tell your grandchild or grandchildren, however old or whoever they are, that your audio is beautiful, but your picture is horrendous, and I need to get you uh, better Wi-Fi. And I will, I will either set up a GoFundMe or I will make a charitable donation. So let them know that. Okay, uh, Darby Fox. What can we say about Darby? She is a child and adolescent family therapist with over 25 years of experience with children and families from diverse backgrounds. Her first book. Rethinking Your Teenager, Shifting from Conflict and Control to Structure and Nurture to Raise Accountable Young Adults. Uh, the book received critical acclaim. She's been on all the letter networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox News, Newsmax, and she's a contributor to Psychology Today. Um, are we all going to be okay, Darby, or is the world gone mad, and sh should we all take shelter in Oklahoma in the middle of nowhere with Rogers? <laughs> yeah. Yes, Oklahoma. No. Let's head to Oklahoma. The world's not gone mad. And I do think that um, there's not the crazy level has stayed pretty consistent. All these things, the exposure is different these days. And I think the most importantly, um, as a, a child and adolescent therapist, is I want people to go back home and think about what is their responsibility as parents and raising young people and to be more aware of these things that come up when your child's been totally isolated and no one see that they don't seem to have friends or they're overweight or bullied. It really does play out down the road. And I think that we could be more mindful of that. 
think one person in STS Nation needs therapy, and that's Cal, who says, therapy, what a scam. By the way, my dad uh, was a psychiatrist, <laughs> but, uh, but I think therapy can really be very, very helpful. So, Cal, you might want to rethink that. Um, and, well, uh, I need to tell Cal, think about AA. It works if you work it, and it doesn't if you don't. Amen. Well, you know, let me tell you, my dad, uh, who was a trained therapist and studied with a lot of intellectuals in the field, said there's nothing better than AA. He was a very big, he wasn't a member of AA, but he sent clients there, patients there, and really uh, thought it was a very helpful uh, organization. So there is that. As a matter of fact, I woke up, very quick story, senior year, and you know how you have to give like a senior quote for the yearbook. Well, I didn't really prepare that day. And, uh, I woke up that morning and uh, my hair was messy. I was late to school as usual. And I said, oh, crap, today's the day I have to give in my senior quote. I said, Dad, you have a senior quote that I can use. And he goes, Joel, inch by inch, it's a cinch. Yard by yard, it's hard. It's one of the AA slogans. And I didn't even know how to spell cinch, but I looked it up. And that today is still my high school yearbook. Inch by inch, it's a cinch. Yard by yard, it's hard. And with that, I will almost say goodbye tomorrow, 5 p.m. Eastern time. Great Scott, your true crime fill with FBI agent Scott Duffy and former Houston homicide detective Phil Waters. We're going to discuss more crime stories, 5 p.m. Eastern time. Until then, love you, America. Love you, Oklahoma. Love you, South Carolina. Love you, South Florida. Love you, Connecticut. Love you, love, la, 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 la. Love you New York, Australia, Canada. And anyone else who I missed. Don't forget Boston, because I got some weird people there. God bless with Boston. You know, that's what that's where rapists are being born in Boston. Don't forget, <laughs> I love you too, Boston. Until next time. Final seconds of the game. A chance to score and the chance has gone begging. If your business's commerce platform keeps missing the target on golden opportunities, get the MVP you deserve. Get Shopify. <coughs> Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. Whether you're a garage entrepreneur or IPO ready, Shopify is the only tool that you need to start, run and grow your business without the struggle. Shopify puts you in control of every sales channel. So whether you're selling signed football boots from Shopify's in-person POS system or you're vending vintage shirts on Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform, you are covered. And once you've reached your audience, Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout to help you turn them from browsers to buyers. What I love about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US. And Shopify is truly a global force, powering Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across over 170 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. This is Possibility, powered by Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ranks, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com forward slash ranks to take your business to the next level today. That's shopify.com 
slash ranks.